Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. And today we're going to be talking about a little bit of a sort of, I don't know what you'd call this. Uh, it's not inside baseball. It's sort of, I think, uh, it caters to kind of the inner circle of audience members of this whole kind of general, this channel and this sort of outer circle. I guess I said inner circle. Anyway, uh, we're going to be reviewing Yaron Brooks' recent appearance on the Sam Cedar podcast. Uh, Sam Cedar was the subject of a an episode we did a week or two ago, which was my idea, which was the right's worst nightmare. And it was sort of about, uh, I, I postulated that that the right, quote unquote, a lot of them are sort of afraid of Sam Cedar, not because they can't counter his arguments, but because they are relying on the idea that the left won't even debate. The left won't even come to the table. The left are all crazy and, uh, you know, social justice warrior lunatics. And someone like Sam Sater is saying, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm ready to debate. When are we going to debate? And uh, he's avoided like the plague. In any case, uh, Yaron Brook was on Sam's podcast yesterday, and we uh, are going to talk about that. Here to talk about that is a guy who you know well from television and, of course, from TV talk on the Ayn Rand Center UK. It's actor Mark Pellegrino. What's up? Not much, not much. So uh, what'd you think of the debate? Yeah, I just got done watching it. I actually got embroiled in a massive debate because of a little two minute uh, soundbite that I guess Sam's followers put up, uh, basically claiming that uh, Euron Brook doesn't mind people, you know, being killed in uh, apartment uh, complex crashes. And, uh, and that was sort of the narrative that they kept trying to paint, trying to paint, trying to paint, trying to paint. And for a while, it was Euron and I both sort of arguing with these Satanists, for lack of a better word. Um, and they were, they were fairly immovable. But I didn't see the debate until just today. I don't find anything extraordinary about Sam Sater, to be honest with you. It's not like, he, he, it's not like he's not saying the most cliche things in the world that I think any half well-read objectivist couldn't counter in a second. What is the right so afraid of? Yeah, it's uh, it's because the right people like Steven Crowder and other and I think kind of Dave Rubin is in the same category. Like they their their brand includes the idea that the left won't even talk to us, that that's how crazy the left has gotten. And they're not wrong to say that, but there are certainly exceptions to that. And someone like Sam Sater, he's the reason he's remarkable is that he's unremarkable. He's he's sort of yesteryear's uh, kind of left leaning Democrat. He's not uh urging for a gulag to re-educate trump supporters or anything like that he really is um a mixed economy advocate that wants to sort of trend in the direction of more entitlements and probably more regulations and and he's not uh he's not out there as part of this kind of big tent of people saying that the left has gone too crazy and that everyone should then switch over to the right he is uh he is evidence against that um, so well, I mean, spoke, mm -hmm. go ahead, you go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to jump into the content of what they discussed, but if you had a thought on that, I was just going to say, it seems like almost everything he thinks and believes revolves around a, a sort of essential that human beings are helpless to make their own choices and decisions, or they're so inherently corrupt that they'll, that the profit motive will taint them so much that they'll only see that and they won't, they won't make choices with respect to their impacts on the world around them. And that's sort of that false dichotomy of, you know, it, when you are acting for your own self-interest, you are automatically in conflict with the community. And I think that's why 
Euron did so well against him because he's able to essentialize Sam's argument and turn it on its head in, in, in a way that only objectivists can. And, and I thought illustrated very well how, how uh, we've just ceded so much of our moral agency to these, to these bureaucrats and that that creates the type of world that Sam is actually condemning. Yes, um, he's great at, I mean, like many people like him are great at pointing at problems and, and saying, look what uh, capitalism brought us when really it's the, it's the uh, regulations or it's just the uh, lack of individual rights being protected that brought about a lot of these problems. So I as I was watching it also this morning, I was watching it in preparation. I was, I got, it got me thinking about how um, it, the first, one of the early utilitarians was a capitalist, uh, John Stuart Mill, and he's largely cited as one of the biggest advocates of free markets. Although I, my understanding is late in his life, he ended up turning, which is typical, I would say. That's, that's um, a microcosm. That is imp an important detail that he and other, other utilitarians have become anti-capitalist or, or more commonly kind of advocates of the mixed economy and setting the groundwork for uh, increased government regulation. So if the, if the standard is utility, that is uh, the highest benefit for the highest number of people, then you become suspicious of selfishness. You become suspicious of the profit motive. And it's that premise, that moral premise that makes you basically, it distorts your vision, I think. You end up kind of seeing this, we're looking at the same reality, but you end up with a kind of a tainted view of things where like uh, every businessman is out to trick you and only really the government uh, bureaucrat, the, the, the most soulless government bureaucrat you can find is the most is the best. That premise ends up distorting how people really assess the situation around them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I was amazed at the number of people on my feed who who actually don't think that massive portions of their life are their responsibility, including sorting out where you live, how you live, what drugs you take, what you ingest. None of that they consider to be their own responsibility. Or they, even in today's world, where access to information, almost anything you want, is almost instantaneously accessible, they still don't think that those things are within their control. Um, I can understand it in the 1950s. You know, there's, 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 there's a part of me that gets a, a regulatory state in a way if somebody can't have access to information, they can't uh, know where that company was based. They can't know the ingredients that they're putting. They couldn't at the time that they're putting in, in their uh, foodstuffs or products, but now they can. And now there's even apps available where you can, where you can source crowds for information on, on various products, places to stay. There's community sharing of information. It's like, if the regulatory state is obligatory now in your mind, you're not in the 21st century. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, the the availability of information um, definitely uh, is is a strike against this idea that the average person is just helpless and needs the government to provide him with like, you know, eat this, don't eat this or or that the government needs to regulate every medicine for 10 years before it's introduced to the market, like doctors and patients can't figure out the risks and make a an informed decision. Uh, what, what, something that struck me is that very early on in the discussion, Sam was making this point how, look, we, we sometimes disagree um, about <laughs> property. So we have the courts or we have the government deciding who's right. 
And that basically, I think he's alluding to the idea that the government should basically just be full arbiter, that the government basically dictates what is true, because as in, you know, individually, we can, we often disagree about what's true. And here, so here the government, someone needs to make a decision. So you might as well have the government to do that. But then later on, slavery was brought up as like an example of why uh, capitalism is a is a tyrannical system. Um, but I mean, the, the government upheld slavery. So then like, can't, how can you be anti-slavery if, if you also want the government to decide what's true and what's, what's moral? Um, there seems to be kind of a, kind of a contradiction there. It, there needs to be an objective reality that, that, the, that everyone can access. And this objective reality needs to be, um, the objective rule of law needs to say that every individual has a right to live by his own judgment and force is not tolerable. Then the court's job, the government's job is to, enforce that uh, principle to enforce that objective rule of law and obviously slavery is is far off the table uh in in such a scenario well i think sam isn't really aware of those contradictions in his thinking unless it serves whatever his larger his larger purpose is but what what, what i thought Euron did that was very good there that i think was missed by sam is is when when he was trying to push you on to acknowledge that government is a source of right, they are the ones who define these parameters for us. Euron said, no, reality is. And, and I wish there was a little more pushback in what that meant exactly, because we seed, we seed our, our retaliatory force to an institution that's supposed to be governed by objective law, by due process, right? So that means force is subordinated to reason at all times. And the purpose is to get at objective reality. So yes, we have the court. What's the final arbiter? Reality. And the judges are trying to establish that. They're trying to figure out in some of these complex uh, cases, what's real, what's, what's true. So in the end, it's always reality that's the arbiter. Exactly right. And it got me thinking about how it really is uh, deeper philosophical questions that supersede um, a discussion about economics or politics in general, the nature of man. What's, what's interesting is, is um, obviously we're fans of objectivism. If, if you listen to um, Leonard Peikoff's lectures on objectivism back in the 19, I think the late 60s, and this was discussed in the uh, study group with James Valiant here at ARC UK for members only. Uh, why, why do those early discussion or those early lectures back in the late 60s start with the nature of man? That's where it begins and then kind of works its way out, out to like, you know, uh, to, uh, to epistemology and up to politics. It starts with man. Whereas if you read Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, the book in the early 90s, it starts at the bottom, starts at metaphysics and works its way up all the way to politics and aesthetics. And I think uh, what Mr. Valiant poses in that discussion group is that back then, Peikoff was sort of basing um, his presentation of objectivism according to kind of how Rand presents it, which was in the form of novels first, like the form of characters. So the nature of man is where you start, like what is man? And you kind of get to see a man and then you sort of conceptualize, okay, what are this man's epistemology, his metaphysics, what political system is he best, best suitable for him, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of, uh, that's how I've been thinking about it. And the nature of man is, in many instances, the best way to start any discussion of philosophy, when the nature of man, of course, uh, quickly raises what is ethics, like what should a man do? Um, and, and, and when there's 
radical disagreement between Euron Brook and Sam Seder about what is the nature of man? Can man be objective? Can man, the average man, live by his own judgment? When there's radical disagreement about that, there's going to be radical disagreement about ethics. Um, the way they look at the businessman, how they assess the businessman is going to be radically different. And what type of political system is in order is obviously going to be very different. Um, how, how a free market would look is going to be imagined very differently by the two of them. Of course, Sam Cedar thinks it's going to be nothing but collapsing buildings and poisoning by doctors. See, but now what we see in, in the dialogue between the two, and I thought Sam was much, uh, much more gracious than I, thought, than I thought he would be. But what we see is, a, is um, a, an unbridgeable divide between two people. And, and Yaron had already said before he even went on the show that he, he didn't expect to convert Sam Seder. That's saying a lot. And he's hoping to touch a few people out there who are on the fence, who are attracted to Sam for whatever reason. And, and by accident, they swerve into the truth through Yaron. But that's saying something. That's saying that, that, Brad, that, that, that gap is unbridgeable. What does that mean for us? As a country, I think one of the only countries in the world that, that started with an individualist ethic and that still has it in our sense of life, what can we do with the nihilists and the radical skeptics that are out there that are utterly immune to any argument um, that contradicts their, their mental map, their worldview? What do we do? Not Divorce? Good question. Um probably uh, not do what they tell you, like don't do what they say, don't, don't abide by the rules that they hurl at you. And beyond that, lead by example. You know, a lot of these, even these uh, social justice lunatics, a lot of them are young. A lot of them are inspired in some way by what they kind of perceive to be a moral direction. They see themselves as, as the descendants of the abolitionists and the descendants of the civil rights leaders and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I agree that from uh, the, I, I hear you're on making the same that that same point that point that if there is any hope, it's probably with these sort of scientific minded um, people like Lex Fridman, like uh, Sam Harris, like Sam Cedar, generally left leaning people, but they're they have a respect for science and they're not complete leftist lunatics. And I, I find it interesting in looking at the landscape today. Someone like Bill Maher. I mean, can you imagine just thinking back 10 years ago, can you imagine that someday Bill Maher would be one of the people standing up against the left? Uh, today, he's, he, he calls out critical race theory as the lunacy that it is. Uh, he's opposed to cancel culture and, and all of that. Uh, it's hard to believe that someone like Bill Maher, and there's other examples of this, probably if Jon Stewart was still on the scene, he'd probably be one of the big, uh, he'd probably be called a conservative today. It, it really is amazing. Um, just how many, you know, of yesterday's kind of leftists are today's centrists. It's scary that that's how far the culture is moving in that direction towards the left. But still, these people are maybe they represent a hope of people that can be persuaded. Well, when I was on Dave Rubin's show ages ago, and I don't even know how long ago that was, um, I, I made a distinction between the left and liberals. And I, I uh, patting myself on the back, I think I was ahead of my time. But I, I think people who formerly occupied places in the left are starting to understand that distinction now and drift away uh, and, and come back into the fold of liberalism. Now their notion of liberalism still has that uh, altruistic bent to it where the, you know, we're bound to each other by, you know, social duties. Um, 
but they're they're stepping away from the more extreme versions of that and 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 I think touching their toes in the water of classical liberalism. So I'm hoping that means there's a renaissance. I hope we have a renaissance in our country. I hope so too. And you might've influenced Dave Rubin in that interview. I mean, for a while that was his brand, classical liberal. He was selling shirts that said classical liberal. That was his thing where we've got like this tent of people. They, they're not quite uh, on board with what the left is doing and they're not exactly conservative. So what are these people? And I think time has shown largely they're conservatives at the end of the day, they're, they're going to pick one or the other their uh, you know, uh, selfishness as a virtue is not, it's not something they're willing to uh, get on board with. So basically, what, what does that leave them? Basically, just become card-carrying Republicans or join the left, which people have done. People have do joined the uh, nihilistic left that who, who five years ago were what you'd call anti-social justice warriors. They, they stood up against the anti- so they stood up against social justice philosophy. And today, they, you know, with the reemergence of BLM, with um, the sort of way that the country turned out under Trump, uh, uh, quite a handful of vocal people who used to be anti-social justice today are basically shrugging and saying, yeah, you know what, maybe there's more to social justice than we thought, or it wasn't as big a threat as we thought. Mm -hmm. These guys turned out to be right, they're saying. So uh, people generally, they've either joined the social justice left or they've... Um, become Republicans. And there is kind of this group of people like, I guess, Bill Maher now is one of them. And uh, uh, Sam Harris maybe is also in this sort of group. Uh, they're not quite with either one. They're not going, going with critical race theory. They're definitely not Republicans. So they're still sort of looking for what's next. And these are wonderful people to engage with if they're open to it, uh, to challenge them philosophically. Well, I wonder if they will be challenged. I mean, you know, Sam Harris still has made a reputation by a particular point of view and people that make a reputation tend to hold on to that thing that makes the reputation uh, pretty vigorously. So I can't imagine him being pried away from his his premises by, by even by somebody as strong as Yaron Brook and and or becoming an ally with people like us. I think he rejects uh, objectivism. Yeah, I, I I don't expect Sam Harris to uh, to, to to be inspired and change his his mind uh, in, as a 50 some year old man, I'm assuming, who uh, who, uh, you know, has rejected much of what objectivism offers. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, like Iran says, the point of a debate or an engagement is not to persuade your opponent or your conversation partner. In most cases, it's to um, to reach their audience and to let the audience uh, just be aware that there's another perspective uh, to consider. And that's, uh, that's, how, that's how the world is probably going to be changed. It's, it, and uh, so for that reason, I was pleased by Euron's debate discussion with Sam Cedar. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Euron was actually a little bit more uh, combative than I even expected because Sam was pretty laid back. This is the way I, I perceived what took place. I know that sounds like subjectivism, but nonetheless. No, I got um, that. I got that too. But I think because he went in there thinking that he was going into a hostile environment. So he yeah. wanted to be assertive. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't want to get walked over by those folks. And that the, the announcer guy, Matt, did sometimes put his ridiculous two cents in. Uh, annoying cliche that he was. And I thought Euron handled him quite well. Yeah. Um, he did handle it quite well, but like, like you said, he, I think he was expecting an ambush, but, um, 
Maybe he was pleasantly surprised. Uh, Sammy, thank you for the 99 pence. Thank you, Marilyn, for the $3. Thank you, Jeff, for the three Canadian dollars. Thank you, Marilyn, for the $4. And uh, thank you, Jeff, for the $10 Canadian. He says, quote, for the coming of that day shall I fight, I and my sons and my chosen friends, for the freedom of man, for his rights, for his life, for his honor. That's probably... Uh, it's probably Harry Potter or something. I don't know who said that. I don't know. I'm kidding. Uh, who the hell knows? <laughs> uh, it sounds like a founding. I don't know. Who is it? Jeff, what is this? Uh, can you please tell us the source? Uh, thank you for all the super chats. So yeah, um, good debate they had, a good discussion. Um, good to see that there is the presence of people like Sam Cedar. And um It'll be interesting to see kind of what happens in the upcoming years. I've definitely thought in the aftermath of 2020, I've thought about like, where is the culture heading? I, I, I've predicted that, oh yeah, uh, Dylan, our, our moderator behind the scenes today says it's from Anthem. Thank you. Thank you uh, for that. And yes, please everyone read Anthem. I clearly need to reread it. Um, but I'm, I'm pred I predicted that uh, political correctness is going to kind of subside a little bit. Um, and I think even just this past year has shown a lot more people are like kind of rolling their eyes at the whole thing after how like violent, literally violent things have gotten and how extreme things have gotten in that pro political correctness. I'm, I'm kind of predicting like kind of a 90s type of decade ahead after now that we've got the craziness behind us. Um, and I'm curious to see where someone like Bill Maher, where someone like Sam Cedar where these people will end up because they are going to be in the hot seat sooner or later. They're going to be roasted by the nihilistic left. They're going to, I mean, they have been certainly Bill Maher has been, they've tried to cancel him and get him off TV and stuff like that. And it's probably going to get worse if, you know, if these uh, social justice lunatics don't, uh, don't relax. So it'll be curious. I'll be curious to see if at some point um, this sort of, reluctant leftists, I guess you'd call them, these, these liberals, I guess you'd call them. Uh, be curious to see how they uh, continue to engage with objectivists now that objectivists are, are taking such a firm step into the internet in the last, uh, in, in recent years. Speaking of, speaking of, I think I'm having a debate with Zuby uh, pretty soon. We're, we're thinking about the 16th. Uh, I'll, I'll get the times and everything and make sure I announce it. It'll be on abortion. Nice. Good topic. Now, Zuby <clears throat> is a uh, bodybuilder. He won. He broke some kind of record for female uh, bodybuilding. And that was kind of the, the hook. That was the, the joke, I guess, the gimmick. He just announced that he's female. He lifted, easily lifted something that no woman had ever lifted. And I think it he, worked. He, he, yeah, he broke he broke the uh, the, the woman's uh, uh, deadlifting uh, um, record. Yeah. And he's become quite the prominent uh, commentator. He's a rapper. He does rap. And hey, it's clean. It's positive. Who says hip hop needs to be negative, guys? Check out Zuby's music and check out his upcoming debate with Mark Pellegrino. Also, Phil with five pounds, 50 pounds, excuse me, 50 pounds. 50 pounds. That's, that's more than $50. He says, thanks, guys. <laughs> I'll 500 sponsor a critique of YouTube. Jonathan Sumption, COVID-19, and the Constitution. What say you guys, Anikos? I understood some of that. I don't really know what he's saying. He goes, I'll 500 sponsor a critique of YouTube, Jonathan Sumption, COVID-19, and the Constitution. Is that a name of a video you want somebody to review here? 
Um, let's get Phil. Do you know how to get in touch with Rozzy Ginsburg? I'm sure he'd love to discuss any proposition you proposal you have. And if you don't know how to, please indicate so, and we'll try to get you in touch with him. Sound good? Um, anyway, coming up tomorrow, we've got TV talk with Mark Pellegrino, Jack Schumann, and Jennifer Buani. Buani. They're going to be comparing Atlas Shrugged with another TV show. This time it's Breaking Bad. Probably a lot of you have seen that series in its entirety, so no reason to miss this. Show up, be there, or be square. I'm looking forward. It's an enjoyable show, guys. I mean, this is the type of show that, like, if it was on Showtime with better, you know, with higher definition cameras, you know, it would be like uh, it would be considered one of the most important series, you know, <laughs> behind behind the scenes. T these are these are like TV people. These are people in the industry talking about TV. Um, and we are privileged to have it here on ARC UK. So I'm uh, I'm enjoying it so far. Marilene with two dollars says Jonathan Sumption is the best. I, I still don't know who that is. But again, if uh, if uh, if uh, Phil has a, a proposal for Rosie, please get a hold of him. And thank you for the super chat. All right. So, yeah, that's coming up tomorrow on ARC UK TV talk with Mark Pellegrino and his co-hostesses. Breaking Bad versus Atlas Shrugged. Looking forward to that. Guys, this is real stuff. These people are in the TV business. All right? This is real stuff. Jumping over to Clubhouse next. And um, if you haven't seen the... Um, if you haven't seen the Iran Brook versus Sam Cedar debate, go check it out. See you guys on Clubhouse momentarily. Phil says, no, I don't know how to get in touch with him. Uh, I don't know. <coughs> Literally, what am I supposed to do right now? Like... Um, Phil, get in touch with me. I don't know. Are you on Clubhouse? Jesus Christ. I'm like standing here trying to end the show. Phil wants to talk business, wants to talk shop. Uh, is there like an email address, Dylan, uh, we can give this guy? I don't know what to do. Um, Phil, get in touch with me and or Rozzy and or uh, join us on Clubhouse momentarily. Dylan says looking. Um, oh, better yet, Phil. Go to Ayn Rand Center UK's Twitter or website and hit the contact tab or the message tab or tweet at Ayn Rand Center UK and Rozzy will see you. Okay. Also link posted in the chat room. Sorry to filibuster. And we are going to be on Clubhouse momentarily. Thank you, Mark, for sitting through that outro and for the wonderful discussion. Thank you, man. See you guys on Clubhouse. Goodbye. <laughs>